And the rest of us, I'd like to invite you to open to Luke chapter 15. We'll be covering the whole chapter uh, here this morning. So if you would like to use one of the Bibles that we've provided there for you in the rows, that will be page 874 in the Bibles that we've provided for you. Page 874 there. In one of the great cinematic moments of the 20th century, Judy Garland, who played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, says this one probably most famous line from that movie as she taps her ruby slippers and says, what? There is no place like home. There is no place like home. There is no place like let me ask you this morning, what does home mean to you? Like in, in the truest and best sense, even if you didn't grow up in a, in a great home, maybe you would, you would have to share with us. Maybe you could at least say, this is what I envision a great home, a, a beautiful home uh, would be like. Some possible responses might go something like this. Um, for some people, home provides a, a place of, of refuge a place of stability. It's, it's, it's a place where we go that almost provides this kind of sanctuary of a surrounding where we can unplug from the distractions and the cares and concerns and the busyness of life in this world and just relax and find that, that peace that we are so often looking for. For others, you might answer the question and say, you know what, home for me means that I can be the real me. You know what I'm saying? So, so uh, as one person said, home is where I can be physically and emotionally, let's focus there, uh, naked before others, right? So, so it's, it's the real you, right? It's, it's, um, it's, it's you saying what you would say when no one else is around or, or doing what you do or acting all crazy because you are in the confines of comfort and acceptance and, and, and home. So, so for some people, that's how they define home. But I think probably the, the, the most common response would be something like this, to kind of use a cliche. Home is where the heart is. And what do people mean by that? I think it's, it's that place where family and friendships, the deepest relationships in our lives are cultivated and it should be the place where the deepest love is not only received, but the deepest love is also given. There's no place like home. I think we all long to be home in a sense. We, 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 I think it's part of how God has made us with these innate desires to, to have a true and a better home, a place where we can find refuge, to be the real us, and to experience, receive, and give a love that surpasses all other. And that is what we're going to look at in Luke 15. I want us to think about what it means to be home with God and to experience the prodigal love of God. 
In Luke 15, Jesus will show us the heart of God in a way that few other chapters have the capacity to unfold. And it does so with great relevance, whether you are brand new to the Christian faith or you have been a believer for most of your life. And as we dive in, I want to go ahead and tell you that it is imperative that we understand verses 1 and 2 because we will not understand the famous parables that follow if we don't see what is going on in verses 1 and 2. So let's read the first few verses here together. Uh, We'll stop at verse 3. Luke writes, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what we have going on here are are, are people gathering around Jesus. And it was a motley crew of people that were drawn to Jesus in this moment. It says that there were tax collectors and sinners. Now these were notoriously bad people. People. Tax collectors had a horrible reputation because they would awful, uh, oftentimes swindle and steal from their debtors. And then Luke uses kind of a categorical term, the word sinners, to describe the, the immoral, those that clearly lived blatant, you know, immoral lives and, and did not live according to God's expectation for us. But it's important to note that that this word sinners is sometimes, in some translations, it has quotation marks around it. And why is that? It's because this was the view of the Pharisees looking on these people who didn't have it all together. Because in reality, as we know, everyone in the story from the Pharisees and scribes who were the religious leaders, all the way down to the tax collectors and sinners, they were all sinners. Of course, except Jesus. And so it's Awesome to see in the gospel, this continues to surface again and again throughout all the gospels, that Jesus had this magnetic draw to him. People wanted to be around him. Even the people who were the least like him, they still wanted to hear his teaching, to see how he went about his business and lived his life before others. The only problem in this story so far is that the religious leaders had a problem with this. It says in verse 2 that they grumbled about this. They complained, said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He hangs out with such despicable people, ungodly people that don't look like us and act like us. And surely God would not love those kind of people. So what's Jesus doing giving them attention and time and actually sitting down and having meals with them? This makes no sense to us. But verse 3 tells us that Jesus, by their actions and by their comment, is actually provoked to tell a series of parables. It says one parable because they have such unity to them. And what he is doing is he is answering, don't miss this, he is answering the objections of the Pharisees with these three parables that we are going to look at this morning. So what I'm going to do is read the first two parables that are found in verses 4 through 10, which 
give us the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then we will move into the famous parable of the prodigal son, and we'll kind of refer back to those for illustrative purposes. So let's start in verse 4. Jesus tells this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus tells two stories, two very common scenarios in the first century of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep in the fold out in the fields and there is one sheep who wanders away from the flock and becomes lost and he says you know what I am going to leave the 99 here together and I am going to search diligently till I find that one sheep who is lost and when that one sheep is lost is found then I am going to celebrate with great joy because this one that was lost is now home back with the other 99. Similarly, there is a woman who has 10 silver coins. This would have been a big sum of money in that day, not like a penny or dimes that get you know, tucked away in our couches and we can just kind of do away with. But, but 10 silver coins, one is lost, and so she sweeps her house as much and, and as fast as she possibly can until she hears that little clink go across the floor and finds that one silver coin and picks it up. And she, again, spreads the word, the good news, that she found her precious silver coin. And Jesus is setting up this story of the prodigal son, and, and this teaches us that, that Jesus desperately wants us to recognize that we are hopelessly lost apart from God's grace. That's the first thing I want you to see this morning. The first encouragement for us is that we should recognize we are hopelessly lost apart from God's grace. And this is exactly what is going to be depicted in the prodigal uh, son parable. So let's start there in verse 11 and work our way down to verse uh, 13. It says this, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. But not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So verse 11 says that this father had two sons. And it says that, that the younger son and the older son 
were drastically different. So any of you parents who have kids, you know that, that oftentimes children have distinct personalities, okay? I experienced this, again, just a couple of days ago. My parents were in visiting for about a week, and the weather is warming up finally around here, and so we decided to grill some burgers out in the backyard, and our almost two-year-old, who is her name is Kessid. She is, she is sitting in the backyard, and you know, she starts digging in, in the grass to the point where she's now digging up dirt, pouring it on top of her lap, smiling you know, as big as she can possibly smile, just having a wonderful time digging in the mud. While our four-year-old is standing over top of her little sister, covering her face, saying, Oh no, Kessid! You've got to stop. You're going to get a worm. <laughs> Our two girls are quite different in their personalities. And the contrast could not be more distinct in this parable. The older brother, as we will see, was hardworking. He was responsible. He was compliant. While the younger brother... The younger son was carefree, irresponsible, and driven by selfish ambition. So much so that he goes to his father and he says, you know what, I've kind of had enough of this kind of home place right here. Please give me my inheritance so I can take these riches and go have a good time, basically, is what was going on. And we don't have really a concept in our culture to understand the the gravity of the offense of this. To, to, to come to a living father and say, give me my inheritance, was basically to say, hey, I want what you have, but I don't want you. And this was incredibly disrespectful to the father. Incredibly offensive to the father. And yet the father surprises us because he gives him the inheritance. And and verse 13 tells us, what what does the son do with the inheritance? Does he go make wise investments and really, you know, honor his father with the way he lives his life? No. It says that not many days later, he takes all of his belongings, that he had probably sold the property and the land to gather this wealth. And it says that he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. This, this idea that he squandered what he had in reckless living is where we get the term prodigal. The word prodigal means recklessly extravagant. It refers to someone who spends money and resources excessively and lavishly. And you can see how the prodigal son represents those who would say to God, hey, God, you know what? You, 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 I know you have kind of a plan for me, but you know what? I have a better plan. I know that you're really wise, but I think I'm wiser. And so all that you have instructed me to do with my life, I am going to you know, kind of set that aside and call the, my own shots and do my own thing. The younger son had deviated from the father's will, the father's plan, the father's desire for him. And this is what we have done with God. The prodigal son, this younger son, pictures forth the lost sheep, the lost coin of the earlier parables, and he pictures forth us. 
Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we have taken God's good gifts. We have taken God's command. We have spurned them. And we have said, you know what, God? I think I've got this on my own. I'm going to go live how I want to live. And here's the dangerous part of the story is that this feels so good. Sin is so pleasurable, so satisfying for a short time. And this is what we see in verses 14 through 16. Yes, sin is pleasurable, but it carries a very high price. Verse 14 says, And when he had spent everything, he was prodigal after all, he spent it all. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods the, the pigs ate, and no one gave him everything, anything. So the, the prodigal son spends all that he has, and he finds himself in this desperate situation. He has to hire himself out to a foreigner to accept a job that no Israelite would ever want to take working with unclean animals. And, and it gets so bad that there is a famine in the land, and he, it says that he desired to eat the, the pods that the pigs ate. I mean, can, can you see him there wallowing in the mud, working with these pigs, just longing to eat what they eat? Is a picture of, a, of, of utter helplessness of desperation, that, that, that this son has now officially hit rock bottom. And sometimes it takes us hitting rock bottom to see that we actually have great need in our lives. Again, this is a picture of how we each have turned away from God. And when we do that, when we go our own way, whether we realize it or not, we are in a very desperate situation. Spiritually, we are helpless. Spiritually, we are weak. Spiritually, we are hungry. But verse 17 tells us that there is a turn that, that is taken in the story. It says that, that when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Verse 17 is so crucial in the story. It says, when he came to himself. The NIV says, when he came to his senses. So here he is, sitting in the mud, longing to eat what the pigs are eating, and the light bulb starts going off, and he's now seeing that everything that now seems so unfamiliar, there is someone back home who loves him, who has constantly put 
food on his table that cares for him, that has wrapped his arms around him and, and provided everything that he's ever needed, he says, you know what? I need to go back home to my father. And there is a temptation here to think that this is simply about physical hunger. But we know because of what Jesus says that this goes way beyond that. There is a hunger for relationship. Why? It's not just, hey, I'll go back and maybe, you know, my father will give me a little bit of food. But he says, no, I have offended my father. I have sinned against him. And over top of that, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against God himself. And I need restoration. I need to be brought back home. And this is a picture of what the Bible calls repentance. It's a picture of change. Someone comes to their senses, they see their deepest need, they look to God and they say that God has met our need in Christ. He has lived the life that we should have lived. He died in our place, the death that we should have died, so that if we look to Christ, we can be brought back home. This is the good news of the gospel. And this is, by the way, what is happening all over the world, all of the time. It's what we just saw in this baptism video. Seven people who have said in their life, hey, I have a great need before God. I realize that I have offended him with my life. I want to confess that to him. And I want to get things back in order and live the life that God intended for me to live in the very beginning. And these seven people, and this son and millions of people around the world who know the grace of God in Christ have come home to God and experienced this great salvation as if we have a totally new life, which, oh, by the way, we do if we're in Christ. I like it when y'all say amen. That's good. So he resolves to go to his father. And he works out this script. He rehearses this script. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy. He says, I'm no longer worthy to even be called your son. Just treat me like a servant. And this is where the spotlight shifts from the son to the father. What's the response of the father in all this as the son comes home? Verse 20 is probably the best verse of the chapter. It says, and he arose and came to his father, but, but, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the heart of God for us. Which brings us to the second encouragement. Realize that God graciously pursues us with a prodigal love. I can't think of another chapter in the Bible that reveals the heart of God like this story. And so what I want to do is give you six characteristics of the love of God. And I hope that it just blows you away and causes you to come running home. Number one, the love of God is an audacious love. 
It is, it is an audacious love. It is a bold love. It says that, that while he was still a long way off, the father sees him. This indicates that, that the father was earnestly watching for his son to where he, when he sees this familiar silhouette against the horizon, he drops everything and he runs. You think, oh, that's not a big deal. We all run. Well, let me tell you something. In the first century, no father, no landowner, no dignified man that has the respect of others and his family and the community was going to pick up his robe, bare his legs, and run. But this father does. This father has no regard for the thoughts of others because he is so focused and fixed on the object of his love, which is his son. So he drops everything and he runs. The love of God is audacious. It is bold. Number two, his love was gracious. If we don't understand grace, we don't understand Christianity. Grace loves the unlovely. This son was despicable. He had embarrassed his father and everyone associated with his family. He's tattered. He's beaten. We're going to see. He doesn't even have shoes on his feet. And he walks home in great shame And the father could have said, you know what? Here comes my son. I am going to treat him like a servant. I'm going to give him the cold shoulder. I'm going to, you know, turn my cheek and just ignore him and act like he's not even there. But grace always moves to the unlovely. Grace loved the unlovely. and, And related to that, love always takes the first step. Don't you, don't you love this? Before the son had even gotten home, the father is moving. Before the son could get anything out of his mouth, the father is running to the son. And guess what? This is what God has done for us. Before we had the first inclination to say, you know what? God, I think I'll pursue you. I think I'll seek you. I think I'll love you. Before that thought was even in your mind, God has already set his love on us. He has initiated this thing. That is, the, the evidence in that is in the, resur- in, in the incarnation and in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. God sent his son to pursue us so that if we would look to him, we can experience his gracious love. And then we see that his, his love is also an affectionate love. I mean, when you love someone, do, do people have a question about that? I mean, if you truly love your spouse, I mean, like, the other people in your family have to, to wonder if you love your spouse, if you, if you have, you know, close friends. Hey, do, do, do you really love me? I mean, is, is, it, it shouldn't even be a question if there's true, deep love going on there. It says that the father ran to him and he embraced him. The Greek literally says that he fell on his neck. The father buries himself in his son and he hugs him. He wraps his arms around him. He kisses him. He loves him with great affection for everyone to see on display. And affection is personal. There is one sheep 
who is lost. There is one coin that cannot be found. There is one son who had ran away. Which teaches us that God, even though he sees 7 billion people in this world, has his eye on you and his eye on me. God's love is intensely personal and affectionate. Jesus Christ would have died for you if you were the only person on this earth. Which takes us to the fourth characteristic of this love. This love was forgiving love. All of the sin that this son had committed against his father, against heaven, and all of our sin. Have you ever blown it? Have, have, you, have you ever lived contrary to God's expectation? Have you ever said, you know what, God, yeah, you have a, a, an idea, a, a will for me, but I'm going to rebel against that will. I'm going to take up my arms and, and live contrary to the way that you want me to live with my life. That's the essence of sin. It's rebellion against God. And yet, even though our sin is great, I mean, you just think, think about your last week, so much sin in our life, right? Multiply that over 52 weeks in a year. Multiply that by years and a lifetime. Our sin is incalculably great, but God's grace is greater still. And so it says that as they embraced, the, the son began to speak. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he can't even finish his script before verse 22. The father breaks in and he says, hey, servants, go get the robe. Go get the ring. Go kill the fatted calf. My son has come home and it is time to celebrate. There is forgiveness extended before he even finishes and asks for it. He was in the process of asking for it, of course, but this is forgiving love, which then shows us that this is joyful love. Verse, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse, verse 10, it says that the, the shepherd and the woman, they were rejoicing. So much so that they wanted to make it a public joy. They called their friends, their neighbors. Hey, rejoice with me. Get in on this deal with me because this is an amazing love. There is every reason for me to rejoice and I want to pull you in on the rejoicing. And Jesus says, hey, this is like on an infinitely small scale. You should see what happens in heaven when one person who is far away from God comes home to God and is saved. We said last week, to know God, to have this relationship with God, God invites us to a feast, not a funeral. It is a celebration. For anyone who thinks Christianity is just kind of this boring, dull, rule-keeping religion, they don't understand the real thing. This is infinite joy. This is infinite celebration. And the most amazing thing about this is that when heaven rejoices, it is essentially saying God is rejoicing when the son comes home. So I know it's hard for us to have a framework for this, but if you've responded to the gospel, 
If you have come home, if you have confessed your sin to God and you have said, you know what, I am changing. I want your grace to to cover me and your forgiveness to be extended to me. Then not only does God make us a new person, but it says that heaven rejoices when we come home. We don't even have a framework for this. Which, which really is the, the sixth characteristic that, that sums it all up. The love of God is a prodigal love. We said the word prodigal meant excessively extravagant, recklessly extravagant, free, lavish, abundant. This is God's love for us. His love is stronger, higher, longer, wider, deeper than we have the ability to comprehend. I love what Brennan Manning says. He says, the love of God is is, is akin to this. He says, I could more easily contain Niagara Falls in a teacup than I can comprehend the wild and uncontainable love of God. Do you know this kind of love? Do, do, Do you really believe that God loves like this? That he loves you like this, that he loves you with a prodigal love. First John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And here's the beautiful part about God's love. When we know God's love like this, it frees us. It gives us confidence and power to live the life that God wants us to live in the first place. So so we don't do what we do because we have a tyrant standing over us that is saying, do this, don't do that. That's not Christianity at all. We have a father who has set his love on us and loves us so much that the last thing we would ever want to do is dishonor and disgrace him with our lives. Love motivates everything that we do as believers, both our love for God and our love for one another. And we see God's love on clearest display in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why John Stott says, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for it for its sparks to fall on us. So have you drawn near to the cross of Christ? Have you experienced his love? Do you know the bold and audacious, the gracious and affectionate, the joyfully forgiving, prodigal love of God in Christ? Do you know this love? Because God extends it to you. He wants you to know his love and to experience it every single day. And so we might expect the story to stop right here in verse 24, but Jesus continues because he hasn't fully addressed what was going on in verses one and two yet. You know what I'm saying? And so it starts in verse 25 and it says, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he's saying, what on earth is going on here? There's a party going on and I haven't been invited yet. And when he finds out, it says that he refused to go into the house. One of the servants said, verse 26, and told him what these things meant. Verse 27, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has 
received him back safe and sound. But verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. So what happens next? I mean, do you, do you see what's going on here? The older brother, the responsible brother, the one that has it all together. He's worked so hard for his father's pleasure, for his father's acceptance, for his father's love. He hears this celebration going on and he gets angry and bitter. He crosses his arm and he sits outside like a little kid and he says, I'm not coming into the party. But the father like he did with his younger son, goes to his older son in verse 28. It says, his father came out and entreated him, saying, son, come into the party. Your brother, who we thought was dead, is alive. But verse 29 tells the story. It says, he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not, not my brother, this son of yours, uh, when, when he has gone out and devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. This doesn't add up to me. This is, this is religion, by the way. This is the Pharisees and scribes. This is what religious people do. The older son thought that the father was in his debt. So he works really hard for his acceptance and his approval. And he thinks that on the basis of his performance, that God should, that, that the Father should love and accept him and do all these nice things for him. And this is how many people relate to God. They think that, that, that one day when they stand before God, that, that because of their good works, because of all that they have done, to perform and be accepted, that God will, will, will say, hey, yeah, yeah, come on in, come on into the party. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am loved and accepted. But the gospel is the complete opposite of that. The gospel says, you are loved and accepted, therefore we should joyfully obey. So, so Jesus wants to communicate to the Pharisees that, that you think you are so good, but you're not that good. And even if you were that good, you would never meet God's standard. So you have the same need that the younger brother has. You need to see your sin, which is pride and, and, and selfishness and comparing yourselves to finding your worth and significance by comparing yourselves to other instead of comparing yourself to me. And he says, for those that, that live like that, they are, though they are apparent insiders, they will actually remain on the outside. So listen, you may be here, and you may not be the younger son, you may be the older son, the older brother, who's saying, you know what? God is in my debt because I am living a good life. I've done all these nice things for him, and he should accept and love me. But, but love and grace don't work like that. And that's what we see to close out this chapter in verse 31. It says, and he said to him, son, he calls him son. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He is lost. He was lost and is found. Once again, Jesus 
has the Father displaying the affectionate, personal, gracious, forgiving, audacious, prodigal love of God in Christ. He says, son, you can still come into the party, but you need to have my perspective and rejoice over this son who was dead and now is alive, who was lost and now is found. And here's the, here's the, the literary effect, the, 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 the rhetorical you know, purpose of Jesus ending the, the story in verse 32, because we don't know what happens, do we? We don't know if the older son comes in and celebrates with the rest of the family. And why does Jesus do that? Because everyone who heard his voice, Pharisees, religious leaders, prodigal sons, prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners, they all heard this story and they all had a decision to make. Will they rejoice? Will they come in and receive the love that God extends to them? And the choice is the same for us. This is the point of Luke 15, that we should not only receive the prodigal love of God, but that we should rejoice in it. Receive and rejoice in the prodigal love of God. So let me ask you, have you received this love? Have you received it? And are you rejoicing in it? Not only in your own salvation, but in the salvation, in the homecoming of everyone who would see Christ on the cross, dying for us in our place, rising again so that we might have life in him. Have you received it? Are you rejoicing in it? For some today, you may just need to, to, to be like this son in the story that, that comes to your senses, light bulbs are going off, and you're saying, I've never seen, I've never experienced love like this, and I now see not only my great need and want to confess that to God, but I see his great love for me extended in Christ, and I'm coming home. If that's you, I want to invite you to do that today. Just acknowledge your need to God in prayer. Say, God, I realize that I've blown it. And, and you, can, you can tell him the ways. Man, I have, I have rebelled against you in this way, in that way, in this way. But you know what? I understand that you love me. And your love goes further than my sin. And I'm coming home. And God will make you new in a moment. For, for others, it may be that, that we just need to, to hear that, that God loves us like this. And allow that love to motivate everything that we do in our lives. I want to lead us into a time of prayer. So if you would, just bow your heads and, and close your eyes. And, and let's just spend a moment with God alone. Where, where are you this morning? Are you like the prodigal who, who needs to see your great need for God? And come home to a father that is running toward you. I mean, God's grace is available to you like that. So if that's you today, just in the silence of this moment, you can cry out to God right now and say, God, I'm coming home. If you just need to say, God, you know what? I, I want to know your love. I, I need to know your love in a deeper way so that it would, it would continually to have its transformative work in my life, then, then, then just ask God to fill you with his love even now.
And it would probably be really appropriate to thank God for his great love for us in Christ, for pursuing us with, with such a great love. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us like this. We, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you that, that, that when we uh, move toward you, we, we already see that you've moved toward us, that you have withheld nothing from us because you have, you have given us your son that we might have life in him. And so God, I pray that these moments would be a time of homecoming for us, that, that we would come back running into your heart and experience the love and the grace and the mercy that can be ours in Christ. And Lord, we'll rejoice together at your great work. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's stand and let's sing of God's great love for us. This is, a, this is a song that's actually a prayer of gratitude. Just to say, God, thank you for sending your son to die, to live, to be, be raised from the dead that, that we might know you. Let's thank God today.